Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Hi, thanks for joining us today. We're continuing our sermon series today on the Acts of the Apostle. This is the beginning of the church, beginning at Pentecost, and we've been traveling through the Acts of the Apostles for seven, eight months now. So today we'll be beginning a, a new chapter, chapter 25, and we'll rejoin Paul, who's been in Caesarea for the last two years. If you recall last week, um, Paul was on trial before Felix, and, and we said that actually one of the ways we can look at this chapter was to break it up into two different sections, two divisions. And the first section, or the first division, was Jesus on trial. Yeah, not Paul on trial, but Jesus on trial. And we said that because actually when you take a look at the accusations against Paul and the hatred against Paul, it wasn't so much directed against Paul, which it was. It was actually because of Jesus. Uh, the second division is uh, what we call the uh, Felix on trial. And we saw that Felix was given the, the, uh, the opportunity to understand who Jesus Christ was. You know, um, Jesus told his disciples, he says, if the world hates me, uh, hates, hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. A few, year, a few verses later in John 15, Jesus says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we saw that these accusations against Paul in reality were because of Paul's desire to teach people about, about Jesus. And then we said, like, like I said, we said at the end of the chapter, we actually saw Felix on trial. After a brief meeting with Paul's accusers, Felix detains Paul but gave him certain liberties. In the scripture, we're told that Felix and his wife Drusella, who was actually Jewish, uh, called for Paul and spoke with him. And it says they spoke about faith in Christ. The topic of the conversation was righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, it's interesting. The scriptures say that Felix was afraid, and actually, in the King James, it says that, that Felix trembled. Uh, he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. I will call you when it's more convenient. Now, in essence, Paul had, Felix had a meeting with Paul, but he had an appointment with God. Paul told him exactly who Jesus Christ was and about the judgment to come. I have no doubt that Paul explained how Jesus died for the sins of mankind, and that included Felix. Felix had every opportunity to be covered by the blood of Jesus, but Felix delayed. And my friends, let me tell you, delay can be fatal. Now before we get into chapter 25, because we won't see anything more about, we won't read anything more about Felix, let me tell you a little bit more about this man, Felix, this governor of, 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 of Judea. Chapter 24 ended after Paul uh, was in custody for two years, and Felix had been replaced by Festus. Historians tell us that Felix had been recalled to Rome. Felix was the governor of Judea assigned by the Roman government to rule over the Jews in that entire area. But his, his, uh, his reign was a disaster for Rome. 
He had tried to make friends with the corrupt religious leaders, but the historians tell us that all of Judea at this time was in an uproar. That included riots, insurrection, attacks on the Roman guards, entire villages being burned. The area was completely out of control, and that was the primary desire of the Romans through their leaders and through their soldiers was to maintain control. So ultimately, the decision was made to get rid of Felix. So Rome recalled him, in, uh, recalled him in dishonor in AD 59 and replaced him with a man called Porcius Festus. Acts 24 uh, verse 27 says this, but after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix and Felix wanting to do the uh, Jews a favor left Paul bound. That's our start, starting point for today. We're beginning a brand new chapter, chapter 25. Let me read it for you. Now when Festus had come to the province after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. You know, Jesus told his disciples, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as snakes and innocent as dove. That's Matthew 10, 16. Well, I, I read you that verse, and that verse came to mind because considering this life of Paul, and particularly these last two chapters, and the accusations, and the trials, and the attempted kidnapping, the plots, and the conspiracies, these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 are worthy of, of our review. Jesus' words in Matthew 10 include four different animals, four completely different species. Now, these animals and the use of these animals is a, a metaphor. They're similes, and they are actually very telling. First, he says, you are, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, sheep among wolves. Jesus telling his disciples, and that includes us, that the world is full of wolves. These wolves are hostile to believers. Not incidentally hostile, but intentionally hostile, deliberately hostile. Wolves are intentional about the harm that they inflict on the sheep. Now we as sheep, on the other hand, are not to act or think like sheep. But Jesus said we are to be as wise as snakes and innocent as doves. Well, I ask the question, and maybe you do too, how are snakes wise? Well, we don't often think highly of these legless reptiles, but scholars believe that Jesus meant that we are to be prudent. We are to be careful. We are to be intelligent. At the same time, Jesus said that we are to be as innocent as a dove. Now, the dove, that's an easy sign. The dove is often seen as a sign of peace and good news. Remember, Noah sent out a dove uh, from the ark uh, during the flood to see if the flood waters had receded. And finally, the dove came back, and the scriptures say that in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So this advice from Jesus in Matthew 10 is exactly the advice that Paul needs uh, to get through this ordeal. Um, he's got ongoing trials. Uh, he's got continued harassment and accusations from these Jewish religious leaders. 
Did you notice as we ended chapter 24 that Paul had been kept by Felix for two years before Festus came on the scene? And that gives me an opportunity. You know, every time I hear this word Felix and Festus, and they always go together because they're kind of sandwiched together here in a couple of chapters in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Felix and Festus. They reminds me of uh, two good old boys from St. Cloud at, at, uh, at Gatorland, or, or perhaps uh, two good old boys from Swamp People. Uh, hey there, I'm Felix, and, and this is my brother from another mother, Festus. Uh, this is the picture I was thinking of. Say, say hi to the people, Festus, and he says hi to the people. Okay, so I got that out of my system. Um, so let's, let's get back to the scripture. So after two years, it says that Festus came on the scene, travels to Jerusalem, which is the actual people's capital of this area of Judea, not Caesarea. And the scripture says that the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented their charges against Paul. You know, Festus has a, a lot of cleaning up to do in the area after Felix. He's got a lot of fences to men with the Jewish people and a lot of people that he needs to impress. Only after three days in Jerusalem, after taking up residence as a new governor, he travels to Jerusalem and he meets with the Jewish leaders. Luke reports that these Jewish leaders, and likely uh, this is not the, the whole Sanhedrin, um, it says that he urgently requested what's, what's in essence is a change of venue for Paul's trial. Now such a request was not out of the ordinary, but it masked the very deadly purpose that Dr. Luke allows us to know as well. Because what they were planning was to ambush Paul and kill him along the way. Now this is of course uh, exactly what the 40 Jewish men had made a vow to do two years earlier. This is why Jesus told us that we need to be as wise as, as snakes, realistic. We need to be realistic, not naive, not cynical. We can assume that those that persist in deceit and duplicity in order to persecute the church and the believers are disingenuous. They're disingenuous in everything that they say and everything that they do. We need to be wise enough to see through to the true agenda. And this is exactly what Paul is, is doing. Now Festus is a seasoned political leader. He's only been in Jerusalem for a short time, or in Caesarea for a short time, but he's a seasoned leader. And his reply is actually reasonable. Festus says that Paul is to remain in Caesarea, and he issues a friendly invitation to the leaders to join him as he returns to Caesarea. Now, now would be a good time to remind us all that it is God that is still on the throne. God is sovereign. And he directs human affairs, and that includes the decision by Festus is making to not send Paul back to Jerusalem. So let's continue with the scripture for today. Well, we'll begin reading again at verse 6. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. You know, so Festus spends a full 10 days in Jerusalem, a kind of a sightseeing and cultural tour uh, for the new governor. 
And he returns to Caesarea, obviously, with some of the Jewish leaders along with him. They took him up on his offer because the very next day he has Paul brought to him. Now, it's, notice that he says that Festus sat on the judgment seat. And I want to spend a little time on that. That word in Greek, judgment seat, is what's called the bema seat. Now, the Bible speaks of two specific judgments after we die. Everyone, after they die, will go through one of these judgment seats. One is called the Great White Throne Judgment. It's actually um, uh, talked about at the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, the other judgment is called the Bema Seat Judgment. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, called the Millennial Reign, that is spoken of again in the book of Revelation, all non-believers, all non-believers, will be judged by Christ at the Great White Throne Judgment and they will be punished according to the works that they have done. Now believers, hopefully you and I and a lot of people watching this broadcast, on the other hand, believers on the other hand, will also be judged at a different judgment called the judgment seat of Christ. And again, that word there is the bema seat. That's in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, the bema seat of Christ. And since our sins have all been forgiven by Christ, both past, present, and future, and our names are written in the book of life, we'll be rewarded, not punished, according to our deeds. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 reads, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema seat. So that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Festus is sitting on this Bema seat. And the Jewish leaders and many, um, the Jewish leaders air many of these serious complaints against Paul. And Luke tells us that none of them could be proven. Now later in the chapter, we'll learn that Paul is charged actually with much more. That's later in chapter 25. But for the moment, Paul simply answers, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in all in any way. Now as we've previously discussed at Paul's previous trial, it really wasn't Paul that was on trial. But it's Jesus. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. Jesus came, he said, to fulfill the law. He was the promised Messiah. He was a direct descendant of King David. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He'll come back again. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, The servant is not greater than the Lord. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have, if, if, uh, if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do to you in my name's sake, because they do not know him who has sent me. You know, here's the thing. All religious systems claim to know God. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, they don't know God. That's why they don't know Christ. If they knew God, they would actually know Christ. And that's why they despise Christ, and they despise Paul, and they despise all who follow Jesus. Now, the charges against Paul are all false. And they're all unsubstantiated. However, it's Jesus' saving work here that's truly on trial. It's an affront and a threat to the power structure. Jesus is. Jesus is an affront. He's, he's been, always been a threat. He's a threat to their power structure. He's a threat to their temple. And the Jewish leaders know this. So let's continue. Verse 9. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now, typically, 
the next thing and next step in a trial would be witnesses. But there's no witnesses to any wrongdoing of Paul that could, that could happen. So as a result, if there's no witnesses, um, the defense rests and Paul should be acquitted. But Luke tells us now that Festus is motivated by a desire to the, do the Jews a favor. He wants to gain the favor of the Jewish leaders. He's brand new. He doesn't know Paul, and he knows that he has to ingratiate himself with these Jewish leaders. So instead of declaring Paul innocent, Festus asks Paul whether Paul is willing to, for the trial to continue, but this time to continue it in Jerusalem. Now Paul is being asked a question. And remember that the Jews have tried to kill Paul no less than three times in a period of 48 hours, um, the last time he was in Jerusalem. So let's read Paul's response. Verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You've appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. You know, so Paul has to respond to, Felix's, uh, to Festus' question. And we'll look again at the response in a minute. But let me remind you again that this has been, it's been two years two years that Paul has been in prison. Paul has been in jail, prison, under guard. And we learned that he had some liberties that were given to him. He was free to write, free to associate with some of his followers. He was free to, to love and to be loved. But he was still in prison. Now at the same time, during the same two years, this high priest Ananias, along with the 40 Jews that had made a vow, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that had conspired with the 40 to ambush Paul and, and have him killed, they had all their liberties. They were actually free, but in reality they weren't. They were actually, had become slaves to their hate. One of the worst incarcerations, one of the worst imprisonments we could ever be faced with is the slavery of the hatred of your fellow man. Hatred will tear you up. Hatred will uh, cook you from the inside out, just like a microwave. It'll, it'll cook your insides. For two years, Ananias and his minions had Paul out of sight, but Paul was never out of their mind. No sooner had a new governor been appointed to take the place of the bungling Felix than the petitioners asked to permit Paul to return to Jerusalem with what intent? So that they could kill him. And remember, this hatred is directed at Paul and the followers of the way, but the person they truly hate is none other than the Lord Jesus. Now, here's the thing. When they, you hate that much, and you have your intended victim that you want to ambush and kill, the actual victim is yourself. The sin of hatred results in self-destruction. Sin enslaves. The scriptures tell us in Romans 6 that if you serve sin, you become a slave of sin. So let's take a look at the conclusion of this brief trial before Festus. Paul makes a tight defense of his actions. We can see also his willingness to undergo the law's full penalty for his actions if he is found guilty. But Paul has found that he's much better off under Roman law 
than under Jewish law. So Paul, therefore, appeals to Caesar. Let's recap what Paul just said in his defense. Paul says, I am now standing before Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. Then he says, to the Jews I've done no wrong, and you, as you, and you consider, and you know this full well. If, however, Paul says, I am guilty of any offense, I am willing to die. And then finally he says, but if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. And then, therefore, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, Paul realizes that Festus' proposal is that we, uh, well, what we understand today's language is a change of venue, to have Paul return to Jerusalem and to be tried there. But that's nothing more than a death sentence for Paul. Paul realizes that the only way to overcome this shortcoming is for Paul to take the proceedings out of the hands of this lower court and appeal to the higher court, actually to appeal directly to the imperial court. Now, for the Jews, um, I'm sorry, for the Romans, the supreme court of the Romans is to appeal before Caesar. It was the right of every citizen. And we see as well that Paul is the one that is facilitating now the promises that Jesus made to Paul. And we saw that back in the 23rd chapter where Jesus told Paul the following night after he was arrested, uh, Jesus came to him to comfort him. And Jesus then said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify about me in Rome. So Jesus had already promised Paul that he would actually go to Rome and be able to testify about Jesus there. So Paul is going to Rome. He's going to appeal to Caesar. Now, for, don't for a minute think that this is the same thing that what Abraham did when the angel of the Lord promised that Abraham would have a son and nothing was happening. He decided that sleeping with his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, and giving birth to Ishmael would take care of that promise. That wasn't exactly at all what God had in store. And that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul appeals to the higher court because he's aware of the schemes of the Jewish leaders. You know, he's as wise as a snake. He has the right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Rome, and he makes it clear that that's a better option for him. The scriptures tell us that Festus conferred with the consul. That's the last verse. He's conferred with his consul. Now, that would be not unusual for a governor, especially a brand new governor in new territory, to get some advice from a multitude of counselors before he renders his decision. And, the, and he, what he's doing is he's trying to find out to make sure that the charges against Paul are such that Paul could actually appeal that to, to Caesar. So once assured that the charges are correct, or that at least the charges can be appealed to Caesar, Festus makes a succinct declaration. You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Paul will go to Rome, but it's not Rome that is ultimately protecting Paul. Even though he's leaning on the protection of Rome, it's actually the Lord. Rome may provide the transport, and we'll see that as we follow Paul on board a ship headed to Rome in the next few chapters. But ultimately, this is the 
providence of God. God is the one that is in charge. And we know we've seen this before in the, in the, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Remember Joseph the dreamer? Joseph the dreamer and his brothers. You remember that the brothers of Joseph sold him into slavery. They sold him to a caravan going to Egypt and the, Joseph ended up with Egypt in Egypt, first of all with Potiphar and then with Pharaoh, but ultimately he became a ruler. Now when his brothers arrived years later, Joseph talks to them and says, look what he said, this is what he says. He says, and God sent me before you to preserve you um, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So who really got Joseph to Egypt? Was it his brothers? No, it was actually God's providence that got Joseph to Egypt. And then there's a story of Daniel. Daniel was taken by the Babylonians and along with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. However, we learn from the scriptures that God had appointed Daniel to be a, a prophet and, and uh, a wise man, a magi. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar ended up having a dream. And Daniel was able to come to Nebuchadnezzar and interpret the dream. And Daniel said, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. This is the providence of God. So who was responsible for having this, this man of God in Nebuchadnezzar's course? It was, it was none other than, than God. Not the Babylonians. It was, it was God and God's providence. Now Jesus tells us not to worry. Not to worry what you eat or what you will drink or about your body. Jesus tells us not to be anxious about anything. Now why does Jesus say this? Does Jesus want us to be real positive people? And then, <laughs> do we need to learn about our possibilities rather than our problems? Not at all. Jesus tells us this because, in essence, he's got this. The Bible tells us in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. See, here's the thing. At any given time, it's easy for us to be overwhelmed. Sometimes we get bad news. It might be concerning our family, our friends, might be their health, our well-being. You know, it's easy to worry or possibly even trust in others, uh, people that say that they can help or they know how to get out of this mess. But we need to trust first and foremost in God. Now, why do we trust in God? We trust in God because he loves you. You can show your trust in him by talking with him about all your, your feelings and all your circumstances. Every time you are prone to worry, just bring that to God. Just, just unload on God. He can handle it. Let God carry your burdens and take that burden away from you. It allows you to, to trust in God. Allow him to love you. Allow him to encourage you. You can trust him with all of your cares and your concerns. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for the scripture today. We You've been you. listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.